If you were 12 and under, join me up front. I knew it. You didn't surprise me. If I can get you to sit facing me so I can see your little faces as I talk. Cool. So, we're going to talk about a story today that I think everyone's going to know, okay? Can you raise your hand and tell me if you've ever heard of the story of Joshua fighting against Jericho? Yeah, that's a pretty famous story in the Bible, right? So, who can tell me by raising your hand, what was Jericho known for? Like, what was the thing that everybody knew Jericho to have? It was big, giant what? Idols. They did have idols. <laughs> yes, no, you're right. They were known for idols. What else were they known for? The, the, wall around the, city. the wall around the city. What was it about the wall around the city that they were known for? Like, lots of cities had walls. What was special about Jericho's wall? It was made of licorice. Did you know that? What? No. Yeah. Their wall was huge. It was a big, gigantic wall, right? Now, whenever you have a wall that big and you have like army guys inside of the, the city, it makes that city really hard to conquer. It's hard to take over. So you could imagine whenever Joshua and the people of Israel, they come up to the, the city of Jericho and they see these big, huge walls and an army inside of it, do you think they would have been a little scared? Yeah, right? That's not something that you want to see. But what are, So one of the things that Joshua does before they attack the city is he sends in spies. Who knows what spies are? They're like secret agents, right? You send them in and you try to figure out stuff. Now, what are some things, if you were going to send spies into a city before you attacked it, what are some things you would want to try to figure out? Um, weak points. Weak points, right? Try to figure out where their weak points are, like in the walls. Maybe try to figure out how many army guys they have inside of there. You're trying to find out all of that stuff, right? So whenever Joshua and the people of Israel, they fought against Jericho, they won, right? But did they win by being an army? No. How did they win? How did they defeat Jericho? I thought you raised your hand, I'm sorry. They walked around the walls. They walked around the walls and then did what? And then the walls fell down. Right. Now, is this, is this army stuff we're talking about? Yeah. No. But they sent spies into Jericho for army reasons. But then they fought Jericho not using army stuff. So what's going on with this? Why would you send spies into Jericho to fight or to find out stuff in Jericho, but then you don't actually fight against Jericho like an army? To see if anyone believes. To see if anyone believes. And was there someone there that believed? Yeah. Yes. Who remembers what her name was? Rahab. Rahab. Gold star. You're exactly right. Rahab. So I want you to think about it like this. So um, the story of Rahab. I'll catch you up on it real quick, okay? So here's something that Rahab said whenever she met the two spies that came into the town. You ready? And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what he did to Shin and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. 
For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So the spies, they weren't really there to figure out weak points and army stuff, right? What were they there to do? Find believers. To find believers. And do you think whenever the spies went into this big, giant, scary city that they felt like, do you think they were afraid? Yeah. Yeah. They were totally afraid, right? Now, just because you're afraid, does that mean that you shouldn't do something? No, right? Sometimes whenever you're afraid, you have to have courage. You know what courage is? Courage is doing the right thing even when you're afraid. And so what I'm going to talk about today in, in the sermon is how scary the world can be and the things that God is asking us to do still. And it's kind of the same thing like the spies going into Jericho. There's some pretty scary stuff out there, right? But God has, has made some promises to us. So I want you to listen for those in today's sermon, okay? You think you can? Yeah. There's a test afterwards. Okay. That's how it rolls. That's, that's what we do. Okay. You ready? All right. Back to your seats. Give them a hand, guys. It is a weekend. <laughs> and a holiday. If you have your Bibles... Please turn with me, not to Mark 7 as is listed here. I meant to change the slide. My apologies. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I think in this chapter, there's something that the Church of Christ needs to hear this morning. As this chapter begins, as Matthew 16 begins, you see Jesus has some pretty fierce oppositions. And his opponents, well, they aren't the B team, guys. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are quite possibly the most potent religious, social, and political force in all of Israel. These guys had pedigrees dating back decades, centuries even. They were respected, they had connections, they could pull strings, they had money, they had power, and they always had a bone to pick with Jesus. In verse 1, it says that the Pharisees came to test him. They asked him how, if he would show them a sign from heaven. Now this request to show them a sign from heaven. Let's, let's just assume for a moment that you're being honest, right? That you have an honest heart about you. Why would a person need to see a sign from heaven? Well, maybe you wanted to see a sign from heaven because you wanted to see if the rumors that you had heard of Jesus were true. You want to see for yourself if that what the people were saying about Jesus was real. In that scenario, if Jesus were to show you a sign from heaven, then maybe it would be possible for you to believe in him as well. But is that what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing in verse 1? Were they asking Jesus an honest question and leaving open the possibility for belief? Well, you can tell that Jesus doesn't think so. Look at how he responds to their request. Jesus said this, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now what is Jesus saying here? 
What's with all the Weather Channel wisdom and, and how in the world does that relate to what the Pharisees have done? You see, Jesus is telling the Pharisees this, who he is and what he has done is already plain to them. Jesus is telling them that they know full well who he is and the signs they have already seen were more, enough to, more than enough to have caused their belief. Just as the Pharisees were able to read the signs in the sky and then rightly understand the weather, likewise they could read the signs Jesus had supplied and understand him as well. The Pharisees approached Jesus with a question that sounded like, Hey, Jesus, could you show us a sign? Because we would really like to believe in you. We just don't have enough evidence yet. It sounds like that. But Jesus answers them and says that their request for a sign had nothing to do with their belief. Their question was really about setting a trap for Jesus, a trap that was designed to snare Jesus, to incapacitate both him and his ministry. Jesus is clear the Pharisees have no real interest in who Jesus is or why he is even there. Their only interest is that he stops and goes away. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Jesus and the Pharisees and their torrid relationship, maybe you think Jesus is being a little rough on them here. Isn't it possible that the Pharisees were being honest and they just hadn't had enough time to see all the signs of Jesus? Isn't that possible? Well, there's just one problem with that idea. The Pharisees first meet Jesus way back in chapter 3 of Matthew. I mean, at that point, the disciples hadn't even met Jesus. So if the disciples come after the Pharisees, and the disciples had enough time to see and believe, then the Pharisees had enough time as well. Okay, so the Pharisees have had enough time. But they, they weren't as close to Jesus as the disciples were, Right? Maybe the disciples believed because of how close they were to Jesus. They saw all of his best miracles. And maybe the Pharisees only saw some of his lesser miracles, the stuff that could be overlooked or dismissed. And if the Pharisees just would have seen his most impressive work, then maybe the Pharisees would have believed as well. There's just one problem. The Pharisees have been present for virtually all of Jesus' most iconic miracles. When the Pharisees see Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, do they praise him for having mercy on the lowest of the low? Did the Pharisees believe in Jesus when they see him raise a little girl from the dead? Did the Pharisees respond in faith when Jesus heals two blind men? Did they recognize the authority of Jesus when with their very eyes they see him cast demons out? No, no, and no. No, they do not. Instead, the Pharisees disregard every single sign Jesus gives to them. When they see a sign, they don't call Jesus the Messiah. When they see him do the miraculous, it isn't a cause for their belief. Instead, when they witness Jesus performing these miracles, it becomes a reason to accuse Jesus of hating God, of being an ally with the devil himself. So by the time we reach Matthew 16, it is obvious to Jesus the Pharisees aren't interested in his signs. They aren't interested in belief or in truth. What they're most interested in is stopping Jesus. Every single, every single interaction they have with Jesus, every question they ask Jesus, it is just another way for them to slander and malign him. Their questions were just another attempt to confound Jesus, to undermine his character and his authority. They asked for a sign, not because they were open to Jesus, 
but because they wanted to build a case against Jesus. No matter what Jesus did or said to them, they would distort and twist everything to their own ends. They would malign and lie and bear bear false witness a million times over if it meant catching Jesus in their tangled web, if it meant they could shut him up for good. The Pharisees would never make peace with Jesus. Their hand would always be against him. But have you ever wondered, why do the Pharisees hate Jesus this much? Why are the Pharisees so upset with the guy who literally never sinned? He literally never did anything wrong. How could you get that mad at that guy? Well, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a direct threat to their authority and power. They saw Jesus as a great destabilizer in Israel and in the region as a whole. So the character of Jesus, his understanding of the scriptures, his authority in teaching, his absolute command over the physical and spiritual worlds, none of that mattered to the Pharisees. It only mattered that they beat him. It only mattered that they won. Because if they didn't win, then they lost everything. They would lose their positions, they would forfeit their power, they would lose their prestige. They would be utterly displaced at the hands of some upstart carpenter from Nazareth. And so they fought against Jesus every chance they got. But Jesus made it clear to the Pharisees, both he and those who followed him would not be a part of the game they were playing. Jesus made it clear that his mission was far too important to be kept quiet, that he and his kingdom were on this earth to confront sin and darkness, and he would fight them wherever they may be found. Even if they were found in Jerusalem, even if they were found in the hearts of the Pharisees themselves. And as for as awesome as that sounds, for as inspiring of a challenge as Jesus is giving them, For as much as it makes you want to grab a sword and fight alongside this guy, please understand if you were in the disciples' shoes, you would be shaken in your boots, guys. Jesus, your leader, was picking a fight with some of the most powerful and well-known men in Israel, men who had connections and clout. The Pharisees were the keeper of God's law, and the disciples, who were these guys? Just a bunch of nobodies. A ragtag group if there ever was one. But these were the people Jesus called his own. These were the citizens of his kingdom. And the very idea that Jesus and his followers could ever overcome the might of the the Pharisees must have been seen by many as nothing short of lunacy. And it's that perception, it's that what makes what happens in Matthew 16 so incredibly profound. Look in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter's immortal response here shows that he and the disciples, they don't see Jesus the same way everyone else does. They don't see him as just another prophet. No, Peter answers Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Guys, every single verse in the gospel of Matthew have been leading to that exact declaration about Jesus. 
Against all odds, the disciples have seen Jesus for who he truly is. They see him as Israel's true king. They see him as God's Messiah on earth. And they aren't swayed by all the opinions of the world's most powerful men. They don't agree with those who see Jesus as just another prophet. He isn't like Elijah or one of the prophets alone. No, the disciples double down and they go all in on Jesus. He is Israel's promised king. He is God's Messiah in the flesh. The disciples know that if they follow Jesus as a king like this, as Israel's true king, if they follow him as God's Messiah, then they are setting themselves against the established might of the Jewish political, social, and religious elite. The disciples know that if the Pharisees won't go down without a fight, these guys weren't the B team. And in the face of overwhelming opposition, Peter and the disciples still wager everything that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. This is remarkable faith. And you you can see his response to Peter that Jesus thinks so as well. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But as Jesus continues in these verses, he says something that I don't think Peter and the disciples were expecting to hear. Jesus goes on to tell Peter this, On this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I'm not here to debate this verse with you. I will express zero opinion on whether Peter was the first pope. Don't worry, that's not happening. But it's not because I don't like a good debate It's because I think the real star of that verse is something altogether different. And to see exactly what I think is happening here, you need to understand the context of where this is being said. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus and his disciples are in a region called Caesarea Philippi. And the very first thing you need to know is that the Jews saw Caesarea Philippi as one of the worst red-like districts you could ever imagine. This place was steeped in a long history of idol worship. It was was there that centuries before Jeroboam set up one of the golden calves for the people of Israel to worship. And for centuries after that, this area remained a hub of Baal worship. When the Greeks came in and conquered the area, they replaced Baal with one of their own fertility gods, a god they called Pan. And I'll spare you the gory details on how the worship of Pan was played out. But just know that it's as sick and demented as anything I've ever read. The Greeks would go on to build temples there, other temples there as well, each with its own twisted form of worship. When the Romans showed up after the Greeks and conquered this area, they added a few temples of their own. And over time, slowly, one temple after another, Caesarea Philippi became one of the largest and most well-known pagan temple complexes in the entire ancient world. Here's the second thing you need to know. These temples in Caesarea Philippi were built at the base of a mountain known as Mount Hermon. At the foot of this mountain, the temples were clustered around the mouth of a cave. And you see, the pagans didn't believe about caves, the same things about caves that we do. Pagans believed that in the winter when their gods died, it was because their fertility god descended into the underworld. And their god would travel to the underworld by descending into a cave this cave at Caesarea Philippi. In the spring, when things came back into life, when they began to grow again, it was because this God had ascended out of the cave and had come back to earth. 
For the pagan, this was the exact place where one of their gods entered and exited the underworld. The temples that were built around this cave paid homage to those gods. This wasn't just a cave to them. No, to them it was a literal door to another realm, a gate to the underworld itself, which is why this temple complex clustered clustered around the mouth of this cave was known as the gates of the underworld or the gates of Hades or as your Bible may have translated it, the gates of hell. Standing in Caesarea Philippi, perhaps with the gates of hell itself in their sights, the effect on the disciples would have been immense. Jesus didn't just have an axe to grind with the Pharisees. Surely he did, but that wasn't all. Jesus had come to make war with every single place of darkness in the whole world. And no stronghold of evil, no matter how impressive it looked, would prevail against his kingdom. Not even something as infamous as the gates of hell would be left standing when Jesus was done. And guys, that sounds awesome. That sounds like a God and a religion that takes the evil of this world seriously. That sounds like the kind of fight that I want to be a part of, like the kind of mission that I want to take on. Those who follow Jesus will constantly find themselves in the midst of dark places, places that are filled to the brim with evil and corruption, places where evil and darkness are so potent that your faith is tested to its utmost. These were the kind of places that Jesus was going, and these were the exact places he asked his disciples to follow him into. In these verses, the disciples may have realized for the very first time, the true scope of Jesus' plans. Jesus and his kingdom were at war with darkness and sin wherever it was found. Whether sin and darkness were found in the heart of the Pharisees, the disciples, or in the heart of Caesar himself, it did not matter to Jesus. Jesus and his kingdom would wage war against every power and principality of darkness that ruled on his earth. And in the next few verses, we learn just how much this war will cost Jesus, just how much it will cost anyone who follows after him. Jesus says that this war against sin and darkness would soon cost him his life. And for everyone who follows after him, Jesus gives us truly shocking news. Jesus tells us to prepare ourselves for a cross as well. Jesus tells his followers that this fight may well cost you everything. It may well cost you your life. It cost Jesus his life. It cost the disciples theirs. In the 2,000 years since that separates us, the time that separates us, I don't think that's changed one bit. I don't think the cost has decreased one bit. Today, there is still a million things that make being the church of Jesus, Jesus a very dangerous thing. There are still powerful people that are set against Jesus and his kingdom. There are still men who spew lies and with hate in their hearts seek to stop the gospel. They seek to stop the followers of Jesus at all costs. And just as Christ made no promises of safety to his disciples, he makes no promises of safety to his church either. There is not a single promise that we will be shielded from the costs of this war. Jesus gives his church no assurances that this world and all of its multiple ways will not kill us. 
Jesus tells his followers time and time again, there is nothing safe about fighting this battle. Nothing safe about fighting this war. There's nothing safe about bearing a cross and following Jesus into a dark and sinful world. There isn't anything safe about living in a fallen creation that's constantly producing some new disaster or plague. Guys, the world is literally trying to kill us. But Jesus never gave us an assurance that our time in this world would be safe. Instead, he gives us this promise. That when death comes for someone in his kingdom, when death claims someone that belongs to him, though death may take them, death will not hold them. In and through Jesus, we have an assurance, though we die, yet shall we live. And that is an altogether different promise. It's a promise that I think we need to hear and remember now more than ever. The world has always sought to stop the gospel of Christ. The world has always sought to malign, intimidate. It has always sought to kill anyone who follows after Jesus. Being the church of Jesus isn't something nice we do on Sunday mornings. This morning we proclaim our allegiance to Christ in his kingdom. And in doing so, we make ourselves the mortal enemy of the darkness that has enveloped this world. We aren't playing games this morning. We are choosing sides. And I don't have to tell you how dark the world can be. I know you've seen it firsthand. But guys, I'm not a doomsday type of guy, but I don't think I have to convince you that we ain't seen nothing yet. The powers and principalities that lurk behind the evil men of this world, they sense that their time is coming to a close. They sense the judgment approaching. And in these final days, they seek to inflict as much harm and damage as they possibly can. They seek to divide us and confuse us. They seek to mislead us, to intimidate us, to steal as many souls from the kingdom as they possibly can. And our path forward oftentimes in this life is, is hidden from us. Our way forward is clouded and what happens next is almost always uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen to me this afternoon. I'm not sure what's going to happen in the next decade of my life. I have no idea what my life will look like in the year 2040. I'm not sure when my time in this world will come to an end. And when it does, I don't know how steep the price tag of this war will be for me. There's so much I don't know. There is so much that you don't know. But my friends, we are in luck. There is one thing we know for sure and one thing we must never forget. Jesus is the king. And at the end of all things, Jesus will trample hell and Satan under his feet. And no matter how dark and imposing the, the evil of this world may seem, the battle belongs to the Lord. And just as important, no matter how lonely and dejected you may feel, how unsure and scared you may be, you belong to the Lord as well. Thanks be to God that he has given us this much assurance in a world full of this much uncertainty. That the darkness of this world will one day be at an end, and from now until then, he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Amen.